Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as I said before, um, my name is Brendan. And if you're visiting, thanks so much for visiting. We're continuing on in our series. You might not be aware if you're a visitor, uh, continuing on in our series on John. And this week, in fact, for the next two weeks, we're up to the cross. We're almost at the end. We're up to the cries of the cross. John 19, we're going to be looking at three verses, 28 through to 30. We're going to spend, like I said, the next two weeks looking at these three verses, but really actually specifically looking at two different cries Jesus makes from the cross in Greek, actually two different words. Uh, This week, we're going to be looking at specifically the words, I thirst. I'm going to spend some time just trying to unpack that for us. And next week, we'll see he's going to be preaching. He's going to be looking looking at the words, it is finished. Two different powerful words, and I don't know how do you, how do you come to this topic, and you know how do you how do you feel when we bring up the cross again? And I don't know if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes I think we can have a tendency to to feel like maybe slightly bored, or as ah oh, no, not the cross again. And I just think far be it from us to move on from the cross. And really, my hope for us today is we really look at John chapter 19 and, and specifically these words, I thirst, that the Lord might just give us just a fresh appreciation of some of the riches of what Christ achieved for us on that cross. So if you have your Bibles there, why don't you open them up to John 19. I'm going to read from 28 and um, then we'll, we'll spend some time praying. John 19:28 After this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture I thirst A jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on it, on a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Enjoy with me in praying. Lord, how can we properly give thanks for what you have done for us on that cross? Lord, we cannot. And Lord, words fail to describe what you did on that cross. Lord, this morning we just ask that by your spirit you would Open our eyes. Open our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to see Christ more clearly. Help us to appreciate the depths of the riches of what he achieved on that cross for us. That we might be moved into just praise upon praise for this our King of Kings. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me, your servant, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start off this morning by um, reading an article. Uh, it's, it's actually from the Daily Mail in the UK, and it's entitled, Whinging Aussies? Poll shows Brits are happier and more satisfied than Australians. And I feel like with the Taylors away, this is a safe place now to talk about these things. <laughs> and have an honest discussion. So I'm just going to read this uh, article for us and as we get started. The author writes, A new survey has found that Britons rated their lives as more satisfying, happier and more worthwhile than Australians. 
The findings, despite Australia having the strongest economy in the developed world, have prompted much hand-wringing and angst down under today. Having been formally branded the bigger whinges, the Australians did what they apparently do best. They moaned about it. So it's official. Australians have overtaken the poms in the whinging stakes, wrote Michael Pascoe in the Sydney Morning Herald. Never mind Australia being an island of great relative prosperity, calm and opportunity, in a stormy sea of developed world recession and austerity, he added. The columnist said that Britons appeared to be happier despite a higher unemployment rate, greater poverty, miserable weather, inferior food, greater obesity, lousy beaches, lower life expectancy, warm sudsy beer, bleak economic prospects and Coronation Street still being in production. The results of last year's survey showed that British respondents rated their lives as more satisfying than Australians, recording lower anxiety levels and a higher sense of self-worth. Australians recorded weaker scores in the satisfied life overall well-being, happy yesterday, not anxious yesterday categories in the new poll. While Britain shivers under April's snow showers, April is, uh, Australia is still bathing in the healthy economic forecast from the International Monetary Fund, predicting its economy to stay strong and for low unemployment, currently at about 5% to continue. The British pound was worth more than Australian dollars $2.50 a, a decade ago, but now buys just Australian dollars $1.45. Other polls have found Australian consumer confidence is far lower than in some countries that are suffering recessions and soaring unemployment. Just because you've got a strong economy, it doesn't mean that the people within that economy feel that they're happy or their well-being is high, said the National Australia, Bank, National Australia Bank's chief economist, Alan Ostler. Mr Pascoe, however, had another theory. An alternative view would be that the Poms simply don't know any better. Good heavens, they nearly all follow the soccer, just for a start, he wrote, and get this, I love this. It's not our fault that the Poms don't realise how stuffed their economy and prospects are, he added. <laughs> there you go. One, uh, one article anyway. But, I mean, we laugh at it, and it's a bit of fun. Um, but there are some really serious un unmet desires in this city, aren't there? There are some seriously dissatisfied people. I mean, we, we can say to people, you know, just snap out of it, stop, stop your whinging, we've got it good. But seriously, if we're honest with ourselves, I think there's, there's something really deeper going on here, isn't there? There's a, there's, a, there's a deep dissatisfaction with our lives. And I think if you're truly honest with yourself, you know, what is it that you desire? If you're, if you're really honest, I mean, what's, what's the one thing that you find yourself daydreaming about? You know, for me, I love, I love watching that show, uh, Grand Designs, and just like the amazing, like, beautiful houses that are on them. And um, I like walking down the street. I, I live in, like, quite a wealthy neighbourhood, and I love looking at the houses. And I've got this thing, I, I, I describe it as house lust. Um, you laugh, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't pretend like you don't do it as well. And you just, you walk past the house and you're like, oh, wow, it's beautiful. Look at the, the stone walls and the lights and the double garage. It's like, your heart's just like, it's like a worship experience. Like, you're overwhelmed with passion for this, this house. And maybe for you it's a relationship, you know, maybe you're, you're married, you're even married, but you're tempted to look across at someone else's husband or wife and think, if, if I was married to them, oh, I, w I would be, I'd be so much more happy. Have you ever found yourself thinking that? Or, or, or maybe you're single and you'd love to be in a relationship and so you just find your thoughts consumed with maybe a guy or a girl and you just think, oh, you know, if, if just I could have that one thing, then, oh, then, then I'd be, I'd be, oh, I'd be so much more satisfied. Or maybe it's kids. 
Maybe you've been struggling with infertility. You know, I can imagine it would be hard to be a couple walking through infertility in this church. I mean, it just feels like, just feels like kids are popping up all over the place. And maybe for you, it's something of great grief. You just, and you're tempted to feel like, you know, if, if we could just have kids, then our lives would be just so much more satisfied. Or maybe for you it's work and you go home after the church on Sunday and it comes to Sunday evening and just suddenly you find yourself racked with anxiety because you know in the morning you're off to work and your work is difficult. You've got a boss that's unkind, you've got work that's demanding and you, so you find yourself anxious and you just think to yourself, you know, if I just had a better job, a more satisfying job, then I'd be more complete, I'd be satisfied. You know, maybe if you use holidays, you just, you, you plan on these holidays, but then there's this thought, it crosses your mind, it's like Hawaii, Waikiki, you know, it's like, oh, I just wish I could just have a, just, just nothing big, just a six month holiday in Waikiki, and then I'd be satisfied. I don't know what it is for you. What, what are the things that, that, that you are looking to to find satisfaction? What are your desires? Well, as we look at Jesus' cry of thirst, I've just got one point that I just really hope that the Lord speaks to you and encourages you in, and that is that he was thirsty so that you might be satisfied. He was thirsty so that you might be satisfied. That's where we're tracking. I call this sermon the thirst quencher, the all-satisfying Jesus Christ. And I've got three points. The first point is the man. The second point is the king. And the third point is the eternal fount. The man, the king, the eternal fount. Well, firstly, point one, the man. I just wanted to spend some time as we examine the man, Jesus Christ, to verse 28 to 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. You know, here we have a picture of a man who's just about to die. He's on his last few breaths. You can almost see him trying to get the words out of his mouth as he hangs on that cross. I thirst. And so when they hear him cry, I thirst. They get sour wine. Sour wine uh, in the first century was the drink of the poor. It was wine, so it killed the bugs. And it was common, very, very common. It's probably, I don't know what the equivalent is of now, like maybe VB or (laughs) Goon or something like that. It's just cheap, cheap drink, a common drink. And so when they hear him cry, I thirst, they... They go and they grab a sponge, they dip it in. They go to a hyssop, hyssop, uh, I guess bush is probably the best way to describe it. Hyssop, or in, in Hebrew, ezov, is, is a, a shrub, probably about the size of lavender. And very significant, obviously, in the Jewish Passover. But they break off a branch. And Jesus crucified is probably no more than a few feet off the ground. And they put this sponge on the end and they lift it up to his lips. And my point is that his cry is the cry of a suffering man. He's a a man in the midst of deep suffering, extreme dehydration. I was thinking about this somewhat this week, about this idea of being dehydrated and as many of you know, I, I, I tend to somehow with exercise get myself into these, uh, some would say dangerous situations. I would say, I don't know, okay, da- foolish 
situations. Uh, I almost, uh, last year, late last year, I almost put myself in renal failure from doing too much exercise and, and I, think, I think possibly I have a lack of discernment when it comes to um, knowing what the limits are. But I can remember... <laughs> glad this is on tape. It's probably all a bad decision, but uh, there you have it. Anyway, I can remember... I, a few years ago, I was living in Artarman, and I, one of the things that I really love to do is run. And I love running. I just find it just gives me headspace and an easy way to unwind. And at the time, I was living in Artarman, and it was the middle of summer, and I had this 11K ring track that I would run. And it was one of those crazy hot days where it was like 35, 36 degrees outside. And... and um, but there was like a late change, it seemed anyway, and the clouds came over and suddenly it was like overcast. And I thought, you beauty, like perfect time for a run. And so I you know, got into my running gear and started running. I got about a, a kilometre into my run and the clouds just like vanished completely. And suddenly I was out in the middle of the day already having drunk probably about six cups of coffee, badly dehydrated, in the middle of the heating sun. And I just thought, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just complete my run. No problems at all. And on, as I turned around to come back home, I was about three k's away from my house. And by that stage, I was just so badly dehydrated. I went from sweating profusely to suddenly not sweating at all and feeling freezing cold. And I started getting like shivers all over my body and, and, and my mouth is so parched, I'm just craving water. And I had to stop and just sit uh, where I was by the side of the road. And I was just consumed with thirst. I was just thinking, I, I, need to, I need to drink, I need to drink, I need something to drink. And I can remember somehow I managed to walk my way back home and get up the stairs inside the house and get my first glass of water after this run. And I can remember when the moment those water drops touch my lips it was like I've never tasted water so sweet in my life like it was just something about being so dehydrated that made that water just like so delicious I mean water doesn't have a taste does it but I think when you're just so badly dehydrated um, it just it's different and that's not even a picture of what Christ has gone through that's just me with my foolish exercise lack of wisdom and discernment but but why is this significant? Well, it's because Jesus Christ on a cross, the King of Kings, thirsts just like you and me. Again, why is this significant? And I think the answer is, is because he empathizes with our struggles. Now, I don't know if it's occurred to you, but Jesus the man knows the chill of a cold morning on your face. Jesus, the man, he knows the smell, that smell of pollen in spring. He knows that, that rough feel of stone against your hand. He knows the sound of the ocean against the sand. He knows the crackle of a fire by night. He knows the blazing heat of the midday sun on your back. He knows what it is to thirst. He knows what it is to be abandoned by a friend. He knows what it is to experience the pain of losing a loved one. He knows the sorrow of rejection and reviling. He knows the pain of a broken body. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who was in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. For I thirst. It's the cry of a man facing his death. But I think if we just leave it there, I think we've missed the point. So point two the king. I think Wilsey really addressed this so well as he looked at all the different aspects of Jesus' kingship. 
you know, how he was king without a contest, how they nailed that sign above his head, meant to be mocking but really a deep irony as the sign that reads, the king of the Jews is with him as he's lifted up because he is our king, he is a king. But John is all about Jesus, not just as the man king but as the divine king. You know, John 1.1 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, John writes in John 4.25 And the woman said to him, that is the Samaritan woman, says to Jesus, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will teach us these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says, I am the Messiah that's coming. It's me. I am the anointed one, the king. In John 8, 56, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am the divine king. Again, John 18.36, this time Jesus with Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is the divine king. It's the eternal word, the king who has humbled himself to become flesh and take God's wrath for us. And I think as people, we, we long for Great kings. I think we really long for great kings. You know, all in the news this week, it's been about Nelson Mandela, a great king, who it seems is, is nearing the end of his life. Nelson Mandela, the man who spent 27 years in prison and after his release became the first black African president of South Africa. Nelson Mandela, who led the peaceful transition from apartheid South Africa. But yet Nelson Mandela, a deeply flawed man. Nelson Mandela, who multiple times committed adultery on his wife. Who led an armed resistance of sabotage against the then government. We long for great kings and yet yet we always fail to find them. Even in the greatest one of the greatest of this generation like Nelson. And here we have the one true great king, king of kings, and he's full of power. And because of that, his thirst is a thirst of submission. Why don't you read with me John chapter 10, Verse 17, a few pages back. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, says the King. And so his thirst is a thirst of submission to his Father. Jesus was born to die. He came for this purpose, to die. And we get a glimpse of his, of his power. I mean, I love that chapter in, in John 18 where they're coming to arrest him and, and Jesus says to them, he says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And at his very words, 
boom, they fall on their knees. At his word, they fall on their knees. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of the lords right there. He made heaven and earth. He made everything in it. Every drop of rain that's ever fallen, he made. Every stream, every river, he made. Every ocean, every sea, he made and he spun by the power of his word. He is the divine king. And yet he cries, I thirst. But it's more than just physical thirst. It's, it's so much more than physical thirst. You know, the Bible, throughout the Bible, thirst is used as a metaphor for human desire, as a, as a symbol of human desire. And for a desert people like the Israelites, it's a powerful symbol because water is a scarce resource. And so I want to read to you just one such example of thirst being used in Scripture. And that comes from Psalm 42, verse 1. Why don't you listen to these words? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him yet, my salvation and my God. In this psalm, the psalmist, he thirsts for God. He cries out for God. Thirst is his desire for God. And he's confident in deliverance from Yahweh as he thirsts. He's confident that God will deliver him. Thirst is this powerful symbol of human desire. And so in this picture, we have Jesus Christ. He's not simply thirsty. He's not just simply thirsting for a drink, but he thirsts for God. He's crying out for God. He's under the wrath of God. And he didn't deserve it. And he was completely innocent. If it had been me who'd been rejected, if it had been me who'd been beaten, if it had been me who'd been spat upon, if it had been me who'd been been pierced and hung on a tree, if it had been me, It would have been justice. But he was completely innocent. He was completely innocent. And so he hangs there. And they're mocking him. And they're spitting at him. And he hangs there. And they're reviling him. And he's bleeding. And he hangs there. And he's suffocating. And he hangs there. And he thirsts. And he hangs there and he's thinking of you and he hangs there. The king laying down his life for you, for us. I thirst. It's the cry of a king. Humbled to thirst in your place. Well, point three. Lastly, the eternal spring. Why don't you read with me again from verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He said it to fulfill scripture. 
Well, what, what scripture, Jesus? You see, Jesus has been talking a lot about thirst all the way through John's Gospel. And I don't think we can properly understand what he means when he says, I thirst, unless we spend a little bit of time going there and looking at some of these passages. And so first of all, I want, I want us to turn to, uh, back to John chapter 4 from verse 7, back to this Samaritan woman by the world. John chapter 4 from verse 7 and Jesus is sat by a well when there's this Samaritan woman sitting there and he says in verse 7, John writes, A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Oh, sir, give me, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water. Jesus said to her, Call your husband and have him come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Here's this great dialogue that I love between Jesus and this sinful woman. Jesus asked her, Can you give me some water? And she says, do you know who I am? I'm a woman and a Samaritan woman. You're a guy, you're a teacher. What are you doing talking to me? And Jesus says, look, if you, if you knew who, who I was and asked me, I'd give you living water. And the woman says, you don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about? And, and then read again in verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him this water that I'm able to give, will never be thirsty again. You know, this is the strongest way you can say never in Greek. This is the emphatic negative. This is like saying never, ever, ever, not even a chance of ever will this happen. And Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you water and you would never, ever, ever, not even a chance of ever thirst again. And the woman is like, oh yeah, that's right, I remember who you are. You're the, you're the water into wine guy. You're the fed 5,000 people with the bread guy. Oh, this water sounds good. Never ending bucket, I like that. Never have to come back to this well again. It sounds good. Give me some of that, Jesus. This is great. And, and she's missed the point. But Jesus, in answering her request, what's the first thing he says to her? Woman, go and get your husband. He puts his finger right on the big sin in her life, the big area in which she needs repentance. And the point is, is that the water that Jesus is talking about is limitless mercy and forgiveness. Jesus is talking about water as a symbol for reconciliation with God, of about being joined once again to God. 
That's the thirst he's looking at answering. Again, read with me from John chapter 7. In fact, just let me read to you. John chapter 7 from verse 37. Jesus is at the Feast of the Booths where they have the ritual pouring out of water and the waving of grain. And Jesus says, on the last day of the feast, it says, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John writes, Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Thirst, Jesus says, come to me and believe and I'll give you living water, limitless stream. He's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about union with Christ. He's talking about being permanently reconciled with, joined again to God once and for all. He's talking about spiritual new birth. And in his conversation with the Samaritan woman in verse 21 to 24, he then goes on to explain to her, you know, one day you will worship People will worship in spirit and in truth. This is what it means to have the fount of water that overflows. It means reconciliation with God. Thirst quenching or drinking of Christ's water. It's about union with Christ. It's about spiritual new birth. It's a metaphor for being born again. And on the cross, what he's experiencing is thirst. He's thirsting for God on our behalf so that we might never, ever, ever thirst again. You see, in the Bible, there's, there's a big story of thirsting for God. You know, back in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, one of the first things that's described about the garden is that there's these four streams that flow from it. And God is there and he walks with man. But man turns his own way and rejects God. And as a result of rejecting God and eating from the fruit of that tree like Adam does, God curses the ground and he says, by the toil of your sweat, you will work, you will thirst. We will physically thirst, but we will also spiritually thirst. We will thirst for God. But God, not satisfied with our destruction, he sends prophets, he sends kings, he sends people, and to our, the very last time he sends the Christ, our king, who says, come to me and I will give you living water. Because his thirst purchases for us entrance into the eternal spring. I want to read you one of these verses that speaks so clearly to this promise of being once again joined with Christ, of being once again joined with God in three persons by the Spirit. It's from Isaiah 55 and the prophet Isaiah writes, he says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Let the wicked, verse 7, forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to, to God, return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Thirst, it's a powerful symbol of being our desire to be rejoined with the Lord, with God. 
and Isaiah a thousand years before promises that there's a banquet coming. God promises that he's going to have this rich banquet. And what it is, is it symbolises God extending limitless mercy and forgiveness to anyone who wants it. It's reconciliation with God, friends. That's what the picture is. Reconciliation, coming back to that garden once again and walking with God. And so when Jesus cries, I thirst on that cross, he's fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling the promise of that banquet. And this is the only place where our deepest desires will be met. You know, St. Augustine writes in the, in the fourth century, he writes, you have made us for yourself and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in you. God made you and he made you for a purpose. And the purpose for which you were made was to enjoy Christ and to be enjoyed by him. You were made for him. And so you will always be restless until you come to rest in him. The only true source of satisfaction for man is to be reunited with God. Well, obvious question. Why do I continuously feel dissatisfied? I mean, why? Why do I continuously have all these desires that consume me and there's times in which the last thing that I want to look to is Christ? Why? Have you ever wondered that? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I think the first reason is that we we look to other gods. We look to counterfeit gods that can never, ever satisfy. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Friends, I think we look to things, idols, that that give out to us false hope. Often good things, but that say to us, yes, find your satisfaction and purpose and meaning in this, but can never really satisfy. We look to false hopes which cannot satisfy the longings of our heart. Well, secondly, I, I think we feel dissatisfied because we live in a broken world. We have difficult relationships. We have difficult work situations. We struggle with health. You know, and to, 
to be honest, I haven't experienced much suffering at all in this life. I've been incredibly blessed. And I know for a fact that there's people here in this church that have suffered far more than I've ever suffered at all. But I was just thinking about it this week and, you know, even in my young age, like I've, I've lost four friends, three to, to illness and one to suicide. It's a broken world. It's a broken world full of suffering. And Christ hasn't come back yet. We still wait for him to return. And so there's a real sense in which we have desires and we desire to be with him. We have genuine pain in a broken world. But I think, thirdly, I think we fail to perceive sometimes our true situation. We, we have an eternal fount in Christ. We have a limitless source of mercy and forgiveness. We are joined permanently by the Spirit to Him. He is there. He is with us. We are united. John Piper puts it this way in his book, God is the Gospel. He says, The Gospel is the good news of our final and full enjoyment of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That this joy had to be purchased for sinners at the cost of Christ's life makes his glory shine all the more brightly. And that this enjoyment is a free and unmerited gift makes it shine all the more brightly still. But the price Jesus paid for the gift and the unmerited freedom of the gift are not the gift. The gift is Christ himself as the glorious image of God seen and savoured with everlasting joy. The gift of the gospel, the message of the gospel is that we get Christ. We get to spend eternity with him and he is with us now. And I just think sometimes if only we could see it, if only we could see that the King of kings, the Lord of lords is with us. If only we could see that that life is short, that heaven is a long time and that Christ is there. If only we could look at our lives with the rose-coloured lenses of the gospel where we see that no matter how difficult our situation, the King of glory is by our side. He is there. The fount, it just satisfies because even in our struggle for work, we can look up and see his face. You know, even if we're struggling, looking for marriage or a relationship, in the midst of our struggle, we can look up and see his face. You know, even if we're struggling with health and our body is failing, we can look up and see his face and he is there. That is the all-satisfying fount. Our greatest thirst has been satisfied by Christ and he will soon return and put all of our longings to rest. I, I, just, I just wanted to end with just a personal illustration of where I've seen this. Um, and it's in my dad. Um, I called him actually yesterday to ask his permission if I could share this. And my dad, uh, some of you will know, uh, was a very successful prosecutor. He was a crown prosecutor. And, um, but some years ago, he just started uh, really suffering from deep depression. And so there would be times where my dad would just be so despairing that he would just despair of life. And my dad has, is one of my heroes in that sense. He's been just struggling and, and walking through this for some years now. And his depression became so bad that he had to leave his job and go into early retirement. 
But my dad, in the midst of his depression and in the midst of just these overwhelming feelings of, of, of sadness and anxiety, and he has just really been forced to turn to his fount, his Lord, his Saviour as his one strength. And just last week I was chatting to him on the phone and, and we're talking about faith and we're talking about church and, and my dad said to me, he said, and the words stuck with me, he said, you know, Brendan, with the Lord it's like every day is sweeter than the one before. And I mean, isn't that just a beautiful picture of someone who is walking through a really difficult time? And don't hear me say that medicine is not important or there's no need for doctors and things like this. I think all those things are important. We go to a doctor if we, if we need pills for uh, infection. We, we can go to the doctor to seek help and medicine for us in our struggles as well. But in the midst of everything that's going on with a broken, failing body, with feelings of despair, who does my dad look to? He looks to his Father in heaven, his eternal fount. And that is where he finds his deepest satisfaction. So let me encourage, me, uh, let me encourage you, sorry. Use your pain as a reminder to look to your physician. He is our eternal fount. Knowing his presence gives us unspeakable satisfaction. Well, in the Saviour's cry of thirst, we see the cry of a man facing his death. We see the cry of a king humbled thirst in your place. We see the cry which purchased eternal satisfaction for us. He was thirsty so that you might be satisfied. Won't you join with me in praying? The Apostle John says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord, we long for that day when we can be with you in eternity. Lord, we long for that day when you will wipe away every tear. But in the interim, Lord, now and forever through the cross of Jesus Christ, you have given us an eternal found. You are with us even now in this moment. Lord, I ask for anyone sitting here who feels distant from you, who feels a deep sense of dissatisfaction, who feels anxious, who is hurting with their life. Lord, I just pray that by your spirit you would quench their thirst from your eternal fount. May they know your presence with them. May we know your presence with us. Even in our darkest trials, Lord, you are there. Lord, we never have to cry, I thirst, because you have quenched our thirst once and for all. May we look to nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else but you, our King, our risen Lord and Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.